You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 149, coming up on the big 150. And this is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this morning by Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how's things in the great white north? Uh, They're all right. How are you, Nathan? How are you? Well, you know, uh, it, it's going to be the uh, mid-70s on Halloween here, so uh, pretty typical Georgia. And my T-ball season ends tonight, which is to say one night after the World Series wraps. So it's a strange place to live here in Georgia, but you all are both aware of that. And of course, Is that I late st- for a T-ball season? I've, I, I haven't been to a T-ball game since I played T-ball. Well, it, it's uh, Statham, Georgia's first uh, season of fall baseball, so uh, there actually is no precedent. <laughs> but how did, I just, how did your son I, do? Well, actually, it's my daughter who's in T-ball. Whoa! Uh, and she Sisters did are doing it for themselves. That's right. And my son, who's in uh, coach pitch, or not coach pitch, but player pitch, actually played a pretty good season at catcher this year as well. So uh, good baseball season here in Georgia. Congratulations to the little Gilmores. (laughs) Our third host, of course, is not in Georgia, but in Kansas. He is a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. He is Dr. David Grubbs. David, how are you doing this morning? Oh, pretty decent. It's dark, and I slept through most of the night, and the baby hasn't come yet. So, you know, we're all good. Grubbs, like his child, lives in the womb. (laughs) Wow. I guess. <laughs> anyway, I mean, listeners. It's dark. <laughs> it's dark and warm. If you have been listening here recently, you know that we are doing a trilogy of episodes on Robin Williams movies uh, in honor of the actor and comedian who died earlier this year. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about a movie that it seems like every English teacher has some opinion on, whether we love it or whether we loathe it. It is Dead Poets Society. And so, David, whether we love it or whether we hate it, I imagine that most North American English teachers under 40, and I'm still there, listeners, uh, have come into contact with this <laughs> film or with rumors of this film relatively early. Uh, when did you have your first run-in with this film, and how has your global opinion of it shifted in the years since? And go ahead and pass it off to Michael when you see fit. Yeah, I'm not really going to have much to say about this, except that uh, I saw it last night. (laughs) (laughs) There's no Kung Um, Fu in it, so David hadn't seen it before. Yes. um, I'm not entirely certain how it is that I got this far in my life with never having seen it, but uh, yeah, such is the case. 
nonetheless, um, having you know, a- after watching it, I'm discovering how many people that I was in youth group with and such, um, how many of them had seen it. Because I'm like, oh, that's where that phrase comes from. Yes, oh. indeed. <laughs> so you know, the, the, yes, last night many you know many things in my teenagehood were becoming explicable. Um, what phrase are you talking about, David? It always puzzled me back when I was a teenager why it is that people who I did not otherwise think of as like you know super literate were running around using the phrase carpe diem. Uh huh. It seemed really, really strange to me back then. I'm like, what? You don't? You guys don't know Latin or read? What? How? And now <laughs> I know why. <laughs> it's the so. uh, non-thinking person's thinking movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to go quite there just yet, but uh, yeah, it, it it made some things explicable, uh, explicable. Also don't really have a global opinion shift because I never really had an opinion. So, Pass. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, now, that's curious because I know that at least in my office block over at the old University of Georgia, uh, it seemed like people would make reference every once in a while to, okay, you know, my class decidedly wasn't dead poet society today. I mean, was that not a, a trope over across the hall in your office block? Not really. Okay. Um. I, I, I can honestly say that I've I've never I've I, I have never in the course of doing my job ever encountered from another professor a reference to the Dead Poets Society. I'll be okay. Well, yeah. Michael, how about you? I saw it in high school. I had a incredibly lazy American lit teacher, and for some reason <laughs> we watched this movie. I, I think I've told this story before. This is the same teacher who, when the time came for us to to read Follow the House of Usher, just made us watch the uh, Vincent Price film. <laughs> which, which was a strong choice. Well, you know, it's not the same plot, but but it does have a character named Roderick Usher and Vincent Price. Oh, yeah, well, that's true. But uh, Vincent Price is not in Dead Poet Society, so I, I have vague memories of having watched it. Then I think I also saw it at some point during college. At which point I had soured on it. I also mm-hmm. think it's impossible for English teachers to completely hate this movie. <laughs> like, because I, I, I think of myself as not liking Dead Poet Society, but you watch it and you think, oh, I wish my students saw me like that. Oh, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so I mean, um, deep, deep down, I, I hate it, but there's, uh, <laughs> there's layers of me that don't hate it, if that makes sense. I don't know if that's a global opinion shift or not. My my wife calls it my wife calls it pornographic. Like it, it's it's one of those one of those movies that. Uh, essentially does nothing but kiss teachers butts like uh-huh. uh like uh to sir with love is another good one if you've ever seen to sir with love with sydney poitier no i haven't so oh yeah well to sir with love is a sydney poitier is a uh well-educated man who goes and teaches in a uh hard scrabble london school and uh, as it turns out guess what the students really come around to him <laughs> what yeah well and dangerous minds was kind of the uh, the movie like that when I was growing up, Mr. Holland's Opus. Mr. Holland's Opus is another one. These are these are pornographic for teachers. It it they they tell you <laughs> they tell you exactly what you want to hear and nothing that you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah. in that respect, I think Dead Poet Society may be less so, uh, just because of some things we'll talk about later. And once again, uh, listeners, we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie. 
Yeah, so pause the podcast now, go watch the movie, and then come back or and don't. listen to the rest of it. If, if, or don't, if, yeah. If, if somehow you've managed to not see it, I, it seems like I... I I'm, yeah, I was going to say it's a movie I imagine everybody has seen, but I guess that's not true. Yeah, yeah, that would be incorrect. Oh, I, I actually sort of had my uh, sea change on this one uh, in what I think of as the, the early... Wild West days of the internet, I actually encountered an online essay about the film uh, that basically gave a Marxist critique of it and said, you know, okay, how much nonconformity can you expect when this is all set in a private all-boys school in New England? And, you know, I, I it was one of those things where, you know, I, I was a, probably a college sophomore or junior, and, you know, I was in that process of unmasking everything to use uh, Alistair McIntyre's phrase. So that's when I sort of soured to it. I, I agree with Michael though, that as I watched it uh, in preparation for this podcast, it made me realize that it it is neither the, and I'm not going to use the term pornography, but I mean, it's not entirely the ego puffing movie that I remember from high school, nor is it entirely the, um, uh, self-delusional film that I thought it was when I was in college, but it's some kind of mix of the both. And I think as we continue to discuss this, I mean, my my growing ambivalence about the film is going to come out. But since this is a movie <laughs> about teaching English, uh, I want each of us to pick a moment in the film that makes reference to some literary text and talk about what's good, what's bad, and what's so sentimentally Hollywood that it makes us want to laugh, destroy something, or otherwise emotionally to react. So, Michael, why don't you start this festival of rants and hat tips with a literary moment from Dead Poet Society? I'm going to talk about two. Um, the first one is one of the more famous scenes in the movie, which is he has them read the introduction to to their textbook written by, oh, what is the, what is the cat's name? Jay Evans. Jay Evans Pritchard. Um, not a real person, of course, uh, although, <laughs> although I kind of wish he were, well, the, the passage they read is from an actual literary critic. Oh, okay. That, that introduction is actually written by Lawrence Perrine, who, who wrote a textbook in 1956 called Sound and Sense, an Introduction to Poetry. And, mm. and so the intro, the introduction, it, it's actually not the introduction to sound and sense it's in the very last chapter but it's the introduction to the book in the movie and and he gives you this very tedious very new critical way of graphing the value of a poem right you're supposed to the x-axis is uh the the aesthetic value i think and the y-axis is the the importance of the theme and the more the more area it takes up uh, the more the more the better the poem is, right? So mm-hmm. Byron is not as good as Shakespeare because his area is smaller because his themes are less important. Mm-hmm. So famously, uh, Keating, the the Robin Williams character, has them rip this introduction out of the book, and it's this grand moment, much imitated, much derided. Um, and you watch this if you're not a new critic, and you think, yeah, <laughs> that introduction probably does deserve to be ripped out. And, and that is kind of part of the new critical project, right? Turning 
turning literature into literary criticism into a science. Uh, John Crow Ransom has a really famous essay that's in the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism called Criticism Incorporated. And, he, and, and that's his basic argument is that we need to make literary criticism a science among other sciences. So just in case you thought the digital humanities were the first to infect us with this uh, scientism uh, the, the new critics did it first. <laughs> the, now, I have not read Sound and Sense, but my understanding of the, the Lawrence Perrine book from which that quote comes is that it's not like that for the most part at all. In fact, what he praises for most of that book is the very sorts of things that John Keating wants us to experience from poetry, right? This sense of right. being alive, right. this encounter, um, all the things I'm for, but I, I feel bad for poor Lawrence Perrine, who's, who's, I'm sure, very careful writing has gone down in history as bad literary criticism because it was <laughs> easy for the screenwriter of the film to uh, take and mock. Right. So I'm not sure if I'm praising or criticizing it. All right. Um, the other one, and I think this movie is largely responsible for this nonsense, is his reading of Robert Frost's uh, The Road Not Taken. Mm-hmm. He, he reads the famous line for The Road Not Taken, <laughs> and I have taken the one less traveled by, and it has made all the difference. And he uses this as a as a uh, as an argument for nonconformity, which is how it's been used for in uh, in in high school graduation. Uh, what are, the, what are the valedictorian speeches for time <laughs> immemorial, right? Uh-huh. The problem is that's not what that poem is about in any meaningful way. If you look at the, uh, if you actually read the poem, which he doesn't, I mean, there's very little actual literature read in this movie. If, mm. if, that's, that actually might be about the closest it comes because he at least quotes it. But um, if you actually read the poem, the two, the two roads that he has a choice between are equally trod. So both of them are about the same. He picks one and he says, I know I shall be telling this with a sigh some ages hence. He's saying, uh, I wish I'd taken the other way. He's saying we make choices and we can never discover what our life would have been if we'd made other choices. But you make these choices and have to stick with them. Ironically enough, a much better lesson for your high school graduation. Mm-hmm. Than, than the, the nonsense uh, valedictorian uh, follow your bliss dude uh, <laughs> misreading of the road not taken which uh, inevitably results in a poem being called the road less traveled which it's not called it's called the road not taken so mm-hmm. there is my there is my uh, inf- what, do you, what did you call it uh, fury <laughs> rants so yeah that, that's that's my problem with that yeah, yeah rants and hat tips <laughs> I, I don't know if I really gave a hat tip. I, you know, I like his general project of saying let, let the poetry kind of encounter you and change mm-hmm. your life and all that. But uh, that's not actually a reading of any particular poetry, is it? No. What do you got, David? Uh, what I want to talk about is uh, the way the students, once they uh, le- take poetry out of the classroom, uh, apparently have learned how to read poetry from John Keating so well in the way that he does it that all they can find in poetry is the inspiring bits. <laughs> mm-hmm. It turns every poem into a graduation speech. Yes. <laughs> uh, so that might be the line of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, they, they, they restart this dead poet society club, which in which apparently we're supposed to believe that a bunch of high school boys, a bunch of adolescents at a boarding school are going to run off into the woods and read poetry together. To be fair, they also smoke and drink. Well, that's true, too. 
but yeah. Anywho's, um, the, 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 the one that I would like to rant about is, uh, Robert Sean Leonard's character, Neil, is that his name? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Neil. Um, he gets, he, he gets up in there and he reads the end of Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, Ulysses. All right. We are not <laughs> that strength that once we were. Uh-huh. And, oh, it's, 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 it's that phenomenal, um, conclusion to, uh, to that poem, you know, that not to yield and all the rest of it. And it's, it's right. so inspiring. It's recently re- resurfaced in a James Bond movie of all places. Yeah. 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 He, he re he reads this bit and I'm, and I know that this scene is chopped. All right. You're just seeing bit of reading, bit of performance, bit of performance, so maybe he read the rest of it, but we don't get to see that. Mm-hmm. And and the impression that you get is, wow, Robert Sean Leonard just read this super inspiring poem. And this is amazing how this poetry is is uplifting the man soul of all of these, you know, <laughs> burgeoning adolescents as they self-actualize and smoke in a cave and look at centerfolds and whatnot. Um. It's brilliant, except it hasn't, you know, like road, like like the road less traveled, or the road not traveled by, or not taken, or I don't know. The road not taken is the name of the poem. Yes. <laughs> yes, the road not taken. Apparently, apparently, I've listened to too many high school graduation speeches. You're just baiting farmer at this point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, anyway, like that, like that poem the bit that Robert Sean Leonard reads has nothing to do with Tennyson's Ulysses, which is a retelling. Well, not really a retelling, but uh, sort of a, uh, a non-canon sequel <laughs> to uh, the Odyssey in which Ulysses, which is, you know, the Latin way to say Odysseus in Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's like, it's old Odysseus who's, old and grumpy and bored and he doesn't want to be king anymore and so he's imagining going on new adventures mm-hmm. and so towards the end of the poem he purposes to set out again and so he calls his mariners and it is to them that he addresses this inspiring speech the problem is is that in the odyssey um i don't know if you guys have read it but not a whole lot of people survive with him yeah so None of his sailors come back. He doesn't have any friends to adventure with. Mm -hmm. So if you read Tennyson's Ulysses, either Tennyson has decided to ignore the most important thing about the Odyssey, which is is that he is a man alone, (laughs) or this is a poem about a really old man invoking the companions of past years with whom he had adventures but who are no longer there and it actually becomes kind of sad as this old man retreats into the past and imagines new adventures with friends that are no longer there that's so interesting because it's actually exactly the same sort of misreading they do of the road not taken right they take a poem that is fundamentally about regret and failure and turn it into a you know, again, a graduation speech, this life affirming, individual affirming nonsense. Yes. Right. Well, it, and, and and it's a great 
you know, the, 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 the chunk he reads is great, but if you read the rest of the poem, you, you can't, you can't read it with the, with a happy shot, you know, a happy, you know, uh, Robert Sean Leonard smile, right? Which apparently this movie is about Robert Sean Leonard smiling. That's, that's the conclusion I came to. And not smiling. Smiling and not smiling because sometimes right. he doesn't. Let's be fair. But mostly it's about him smiling. Anyway. And having a really bad haircut. You can tell that we're supposed to be inspired by the scene over whether or not Robert Sean Leonard is smiling. And if we're supposed to be sad by whether he's frowning. He's, he's the, he's the uh, you know, sort of emotional canary down the mine shaft of this film. Want to know how to feel? Watch Robert Sean Leonard's face. There you go. Well, one moment that I, that I want to point to is uh, when the same character, uh, Neil Perry, uh, which makes a Perry connection between our first two films. Yeah, I thought of that, too. Um, when he, towards the end of the film, uh, secures a role and, against his father's wishes, uh, plays in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, it's fascinating because so little of the text of the play actually occurs in the film, which is a, a theme you two just explored. Uh, <laughs> but... As far as filmmaking goes, it's a fascinating use of it because he is, in a very straightforward sense, living in a sort of fantasy world as he acts out a fantasy world. Uh, and, of course, the tragedy of the movie is that, you know, he has to leave it at some point. Uh, and, you know, eventually he can't handle that, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, this is one of those places where, again, uh, I, I used to be you know, very grumpy about this movie and, you know, it's all, you know, simple-minded high school graduation speech nonsense. But this time when I watched it, I realized that, I mean, that's a, actually a fairly sophisticated use of uh, a literary reference, even if it's not a whole lot of literary text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it, like I said, I mean, I, I want simply to be above this movie and, you know, have that, uh, I've talked about it before, that unearned sense of moral superiority uh, but this this go around the movie wouldn't let me have that. It made me realize that there's actually more going on here than meets the eye. The other moment that I want to talk about just briefly before we move on uh, is the famous moment where he reads Robert Herrick to the boys. Uh, it's the famous carpe diem moment that David alluded to earlier. Uh, and what I realized watching this is actually uh, he is giving uh, what I now as a, a teacher of Dante – uh, would call a moral reading of that poem. Uh, he is taking what's going on in the context of the poem's implied narrative, and he is talking about a sort of universal human significance to it and bringing it to bear on the boys. And it, and again, the, the, this makes me terribly ambivalent because on the one hand, uh, it's a nice little moment of expansive literary reading. On the other hand, they are pretending that this just comes naturally out of the poetry without any work. <laughs> so I, 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 again, the, the, the film's relationship to literature, uh, unless you're David Grubbs, uh, you probably have some opinion about it if you've ever taught literature. Uh, I, I guess my, what I take away from it this go around is that it's actually a lot more uneven than I thought. It's not univer- universally excellent. It's not universally terrible. Uh, it's a bizarre mix of both. Nathan, but, have you seen the uh, have you seen the community episode that makes fun of Dead Poets Society? 
No, I have not. Tell me about it. Uh, well, the, the, uh, they 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 take this class, and and it's a guy who it's played by John Michael Higgins, and he clearly mm-hmm. he clearly wants to be John Keating. He tells them to seize the day. He makes them stand on the desk, <laughs> and a girl falls off. Right, he, right. He tells them their homework <laughs> is to swim in a lake and tell uh, ten people they love love them. Uh huh. But he won't he won't give the main character a good grade because the he guy's just taking it for a class and, and, and he's pretending to do it, but won't go along with it. And mm-hmm. as, as the main character leaves the room, he yells, what kind of way is this to teach accounting? <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. <laughs> but I mean, that, 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 that's kind of what you're getting at, right? That, that what, what Keating is doing in this movie has almost nothing to do with the actual teaching of literary, literary literature, right? Except when it does, okay. but he won't acknowledge it. <laughs> you know, he pretends that, you know, he is simply in the room when poetry happens, when mm-hmm. actually he's doing the work that I would call literary criticism. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I guess that's why you can look at the, uh, why you can watch the, the scene um, of Midsummer Night's Dream and see the reading that's going on behind the staging. Mm-hmm. And admire that, but not admire the classroom scenes, because in a classroom scene, uh, a teacher is kind of supposed to show show his or her work so that the yeah, student yeah. can do mm-hmm. the same thing. But if right. they if they behave as if no, this thing that I'm saying is what you get when you read the poem if you get it. Mm-hmm. You know that that's uh, yeah. It's not it's not showing your work. It's not creating a path that other people can actually follow. Is just setting yourself up as the oracle of verse, right? Right. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't allow for other ways of reading as as his treatment of the new critic kind yeah. of demonstrates. It's 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 mm-hmm. if, if you don't read this as an invitation to make your life extraordinary, you're doing it wrong. And I don't think I would even go that far with the new critic. I think there's something reductive about that scientific method to reading literature, but I think it's valid at least in. Um, concert with a bunch of other things mm-hmm. right right so in other words i mean make it part of a conversation don't rip it out of the daggone book <laughs> <laughs> just but don't I, read it on the other hand if I, I taught in the 50s i would probably want to rip the new critical introduction out of the book too because i mean it was dominant then yeah, yeah true enough true enough well at the same time it's like john keating book burner right well, yeah yeah right I mean, really really <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, this is it's 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 almost like a like a banned book week version of how not to do it right. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Anyway, well, well, David, I'm, I want to segue. When I remember my first encounters with this movie, and I was a high schooler when I saw it. I wasn't a professor of English at Central Christian College. Uh, I remember <laughs> this as a movie about friendship as much as a movie about poetry. Now, mm-hmm. again, watching it. 20 years later as an old broken down man, it's a different experience, but David, (laughs) (laughs) take a moment to talk about notions of friendship that arise among, especially among the younger characters. And if you're especially bold between other characters as well, would Aristotle be impressed with this? Actually, I think Aristotle would probably scream, turn off the demon box and run. <laughs> but I, he would have I, I see A E though instead of just E. <laughs> Damon Box. Um, yeah, no, I, I get what you're asking though. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I will level with you. I don't watch movies about high school students because I can't stand watching high school stand- students relate to each other. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> In real life or the movies. Yes. <laughs> um, but that said, Aristotle. Uh, for, for Aristotle, what friendship ought to be doing is a kind of uh, mutual pursuit of excellence. Mm-hmm. All right. That's, that's, that's what a real friendship is. Um, there is an agenda, and the agenda is the people in the friendship being better versions of themselves as a result of the friendship. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, hanging out and being happy. Um, it's not just, you know, having a study session, which apparently means smoking in an attic, um, or whatever. So, you know, I'll, I'll pitch this to you guys when I'm done, but, to me, the two guys who best, ex- who best, from my perspective, represent this kind of true pursuit of excellence, Aristotelian friendship, are the two guys who make a radio. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just being too grumpy, or my DVD froze on the scenes that would have changed my mind. <laughs> um <sighs> They're the ones who see, whose friendship seems to be built around pursuing a constructive goal, solving a problem, and then enjoying the success of, you know, of, of their achievement. You know, when, when those guys finally get their radio working and they're dancing on the roof, I actually really enjoyed that. <laughs> you know, so those guys, the radio guys, I like them. Michael? What? Yeah, what would you add? I would add uh, Gabriel Marcel's view of friendship, or as he calls it, intersubjectivity, because, you know, why use a uh, why use a common word when a <laughs> complex philosophical word exists? Um, but but he says he says people become intersubjective when uh, they they suffer together. Mm. And since since the movie is in some sense about shared suffering, it, I, I think Marcel could probably sign off on it as well. Although what's interesting is after the the real event that causes them to suffer together, uh, uh, Neil's suicide, uh, they seem to be broken apart until they all stand on their desk and salute uh, Keating. So maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe right. maybe it's just light suffering until. Uh, until the end, and then then they're actually blown apart, not brought together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I this makes me a bad person, but I'm I'm I've been living with that for a while now. But I was almost <laughs> wishing that the movie ended with that sort of 1984 moment where they all turn on each other, rather than with the you know money shot of them standing on the desk and Robin Williams saying "Thank you, boys." I, I think it should have ended with Robin Williams sadly collecting his belongings. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, as long as we're we, we talked about his performance last l- last week, I don't think this is nearly as good a performance overall. But that scene he plays really well. I mean, it's it's genuinely sad. You see that he blames himself for Neil's mm-hmm. suicide, and and yeah, and that that's you know uh, Hemingway said Huck Finn should have ended with Jim being sold down the river. That this this movie should have ended with uh, with Keating collecting his sad cardboard box of belongings from the classroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, and the reason I pose this question, David, is that I, again, I didn't notice this when I was a, a high schooler or even as a college student, but 
the fact that, you know, the school's motto is, you know, tradition, honor, discipline, excellence. Uh, these are all things that, I mean, you can recognize as having Roman roots at the very, at the very least, even if not Greek. Uh, and they are decidedly the objects of mockery among the students precisely because they've calcified and stopped really having a living meaning for the students who enrolled there. Uh, so it, it's, it's a fascinating thing that very early in the movie, the sorts of things that Aristotle and Cicero would point to as the roots of the highest sort of friendship are a priori cut off from the teenage characters. Mm. Uh, and then it might be one of those things where, you know, I mean, you know, Aristotle's notion that, you know, excellence is ultimately for adults, not for adolescents might be, uh, applicable here. And your, your disdain for watching teenagers relate to each other (laughs) (laughs) might be an Aristotelian impulse. But what's interesting is we don't see any adults who have friends. Right. Yeah, that's I mean, true. Keating Keating has apparently no friends other than his students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is sad and relatable. I, I, I know what that feels like. And they're even less friends than they are devotees. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't even have that. How sad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, on that happy note, Michael, <laughs> another theme in this film has to do with conformity and individuality. Again, this is something that uh, I really was pumping my fist as a teenager, but uh, it has lost some of its punch now. You go in what direction you want with this in terms of period, social class, artistic expression, however you want to go with this. Start where you start, and me and David will jump in as we jump in. Well, I mean, the they kind of image for this uh, comes early on in the film. You have a enormous group of birds all flying in unison. This is maybe not as heavy-handed in its symbolism as the Fisher King is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, it's hard, it's hard to miss that one. If you're teaching, yeah. like, I guess it's a good movie to sh- teach students about symbolism. Because mm-hmm. it, it, is, it is kind of subtle enough that if you're not used to looking for it, you would feel proud of yourself, but the, the, the the kind of indelible scene in terms of, uh, conformity, which is of course one of the things Keating wants to purge these boys of, although it's interesting that he, he chooses to purge them of it by turning them into small versions of himself Mm -hmm. rather than them becoming, themselves or however you want to think about it, but you know, you have to start somewhere uh, is anyway, the, the, the indelible scene is, is the one where they're standing outside the Dean's office and he has the boys walk. He has three or four of them walk and they all end up walking in unison and not, not quite a goose step, but, but not too far. It's kind of a military step. And then, uh, then all the other boys begin clapping in time with that. And he, uh, he stops them and gives them a lesson and, Oh, you know, you all start, I didn't tell you to walk in unison and you all started walking different gates, but then you, you uh you coalesced into this single gate and he said and those of you who th- those of you who uh think bad of them for it why were you clapping mm-hmm. and and the uh the the lesson he's trying to teach i think is actually not a bad one i mean i've been making fun of this movie but but it, it's it it's the idea that you slip into conformity you slip into unthinking conformity without even realizing it. that 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 something about the way we operate as human beings or as social beings or as twenty twentieth twenty first century beings is 
is directed toward that kind of conformity. And I think it's a good thing to at least be aware of it. Now, yeah, he's kind of over the top in his praise of the individual, and that, that gets a little tedious after a while. But the, the, the lesson that you can, you, can, you can be doing things for reasons that you think are your own but aren't, I think is a good one. And it's especially mm-hmm. a good one for adolescents who are trying to figure out who they are. Right, right. And yeah, that, that's definitely another one of those moments, Michael. When I watched it this go around, I thought, "Wow, there's really something there." That I, you know, when I dismissed the film in toto, I really wasn't paying attention to. Right. Yeah. And and uh, well, then of course it's ruined by this. I think it's a repeated shot, in fact, of the dean angrily glaring through his window. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dean Bitterman. Yeah, these films aren't exactly big on subtlety. <laughs> but, but in terms of the actual lesson, I think it's a good one. So grumpy about their nonconformity. Though, <laughs> 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 well, well, speaking of that, I, I want to roll this into the next question, David. But keep mm. talking about conformity if you want to. Sure. Those authority figures in that movie. I mean, frankly, I've heard my own students at Emmanuel College talk about authority figures. They probably talk about me this way when I'm not in the room. <laughs> in ways that, I mean, really made me think of the authority figures of the Welton Academy for Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this film is stacking the deck, and it's a, this big point about conformity and, you know, grumpy deans who don't like nonconformity. But how does that picture of authority mix in with what Michael was talking about in regards to uh, conformity, authority, other words that end with ITY? <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I'm mainly what I'm going to, what I wanted to focus on, uh, in answering this is the iconography, especially the beginning of the film, uh, that opening scene in which you have, uh, this very old school, like literally old school. It's, it's the school (laughs) is old man Mm -hmm. with the gothic arches and it it just looks this medieval hall that's dark and the first the one of the first things that you see is this very very old man being instructed in the liturgy of education Mm -hmm. you know you know take the candle in there and you light the candles and and then they have their banners with the with the school virtues, excellence, tradition. I can't remember the others. Um, I've only seen this once. What? Anyway. Um, <laughs> tradition, ban- honor, discipline, excellence. Yes, yes. I forgot. I forgot honor and discipline. All school models uh, all... are incredibly vague, but I think this might be the vaguest I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, the only the only more vague one would be something like learning for a reason. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So what we have is is what you know. It's 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 a very kind of academic convocation starting of the year, except being led by you know a man in a very in you know it looks like the robes of clergy. Maybe maybe he actually is a clergyman, mm-hmm. um, and the you know the candle lighting service which i always associate with christmas or or perhaps you know a kind of good friday night vigil mm-hmm. um the 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 banners with the virtues uh it, it looks like 
it looks like a mass <laughs> to me. You know, to my Protestant eyes, this looks, you know, this looks Catholic. And mm-hmm. this is your introduction to, to, to the Academy. And so, you know, if, if you are the kind of person that the film expects to be watching it, um, I think it expects you to see the the medieval imagery, the uh, the liturgical in, uh, imagery, uh, the ecclesiastical imagery. You're su- I think you're supposed to look at all of this and start feeling your collar get tight. Mm-hmm. So in so in the rest of the film, you know, uh, wh- whenever you know the the figures of authority step in. Um, I have a hard time not, well, I, I always see them in reference to that first scene where they, where they are the agents of this, you know, uh, of this sort of authoritative medieval churchy type, uh, uh, authority, uh, authority structure, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't see how there's, how there's any way that. I guess the ordinary moviegoer when this came out would see that and go, yeah, man, I really want to go there. That looks like a quality educational institution. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. It made me want to go to prep school. <laughs> well, but see, that's the thing is that I'm, I'm not really the target audience. So when I see liturgical echoes and Gothic arches, I'm like, mmm, tasty. Yeah. I, I, you know, <laughs> a, a separate piece made me want to go to prep school. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask. Oh shoot! So you know, I I, I think I think we're supposed to be turned off by that iconography, mm-hmm. and and see the the tyranny of you know the the you know the headmaster and the other teachers, um, as in harmony with that imagery. But I, I think I probably noticed the imagery most because I. For for me, that's kind of you know, I'm sorry. Gothic architectures, uh, gothic uh, gothic arches are to me architectural comfort food. <laughs> so when I when I saw that and when I saw what I thought they were doing with it, I I I, I was noticing it more. I, I guess I was I was reading it against the grain because I was like, mm-hmm. mm, I I like all this stuff, but you seem to want me to feel stifled. So right. I mean, one thing that, and, you know, I kind of realized as we were going that these two questions kind of tie into each other, uh, is that, and again, this is one of those things where, uh, you know, to quote another fragment of a poem that gets quoted, although I actually think he reads this one in its entirety, uh, I found myself reproaching myself as I watched this because, um, and yeah, and you guys, I mean, you can, uh, either confess your sins or tell me that I'm, you know, particularly vicious in this respect. But I find myself often playing the role of the winking subversive to my students uh, and, you know, the policies of my own institution that I think are other than reasonable. I find myself, you know, making sly little jokes about them and, you know, uh, yeah, I suppose I'll have to enforce that one and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I, you know, now I know where. Uh, you know, that narrative entered into my life first. It's before I was ever at a Christian college. It was this movie. Uh, so <laughs> it is one of those things where I thought, huh, you know, I, I, I act like that even if I 
think myself superior to this film. Well, Michael, this, this film, you know, we really can't escape this, this angle. It has taken on a sad biographical resonance in the last few months with Robin Williams' own life, like Neil's in the film, ending with suicide. Within this movie's sort of moral economy, what place does suicide hold and how does this bleak ending relate to the strange optimism that pervades the rest of the movie? It's a weird way to end it that that's for sure and and what struck me watching it again is is just how useless this suicide was i mean neil is a senior he he kills himself because his father doesn't want him to be an actor he wants him to be a uh, a doctor instead and, and he sees no way out so he kills himself and all i could think of was man you got like six months left and then you won't have to do anything your father tells you to do you can you you don't have to be a doctor <laughs> You're, you know, it's just such a waste. And what's even stranger is the movie kind of presents it as a valid moral choice. There, there's, there is, there's, yeah. there's no sense that Robert Sean Leonard has failed or done a stupid thing or a selfish thing. It's, it's, it's Keating's fault or for, for encouraging him to be an actor, or it's his father's fault for discouraging him to be an actor. But there's no sense that this is a young man without any kind of perspective, who, yeah. who just didn't. Who, who committed this act in, in a n- – not out of a deep-seated depression. So, uh, Williams' suicide is much more understandable to me than Neil's. Let me put it that way. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, w- Williams had this long history of depression and he was um, going bankrupt. And, and, like, not that I approve of it, but you can understand how suicide would appear to somebody in that position, or at least I can. Mm-hmm. Neil, it's it's such a petulant act. It, it's a it's an adolescent yeah. suicide. It, it's that'll show him, and, and I, I yeah. think it's a I think it's a bad way to to end the movie. Not in the sense that there wasn't a good way to end this movie with a suicide, but but in the sense that it, it's played for easy sentiment instead of any kind of complex or interesting moral examination. Mm-hmm. David, I can well. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to second that, but uh, even more than this, and, and I have to, uh, I have to tip my hat to my wife on this, um, for reminding me of <laughs> a scene in a Friends episode, mm-hmm. um, in which uh, a character is talking about dead poet society. This is not one of the Friends. It's like a you know third tier character who's only there for the one episode. Sure. But talk, talking about how much this character is talking about how much Dead Poet Society had inspired her because uh, she says she got to the end of the movie and, you know, the characters in, you know, you know, Monica and Rachel are, 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 you know, hanging on her every word, expecting her to talk about seize the day and whatnot. And then this woman mm-hmm. says, and when I got to the end of Dead Poet Society, I said, I am never going to get those two hours back. What a waste of two hours. That kid was an idiot. Just go do community theater later in life. <laughs> <laughs> and so this character talks about how, you know, this, the, 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 the kind of pointless and not really very, I guess, futurely aware. I, I, I think you said it better, Michael, but just it's, it's, the 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 narrow vision of of that character that cannot see between beyond that moment and imagine a future in which i don't know he's in a play mm-hmm. um was 
at least in this Friends episode that my wife reminded me of, held up as, you know, this is a serious lack of imagination. And if and if you're living like that, you need you need to change. Mm-hmm. You, you, you need to you need to not feel feel trapped by the exigencies of of your moment and live through your moment and then plan for a better moment later. Um, which anyway, I've, I, I thought that was really, really funny, especially since it, it was very clear that, uh, the other characters in that scene were expecting her to take it in the, take, take the movie reference in a completely different direction. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the, the, I, I guess my problem with Neil's suicide is that I don't see how it rises out of everything else that Keating says in the film. Yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't I don't see how he can be, you know, with the exception of encouraging him to act. Um, if he'd ever been listening to, you know, Gather Rosebuds While You Way or all the rest of it, you know, all of these other bits of poems, even if they don't mean this when you read them, you know, in their entirety, um, all those bits of poems are saying things like persevere, continue, um, chart your own course in spite of difficulties. Mm-hmm. And he's not committing suicide because he didn't get the message, he, uh, because he got the message. He's committing suicide because he doesn't get the message. But the, right. but the movie is confused about that. Yes. The, movie's, the movie is clearly confused about that. I don't think the movie knows what it's saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Anyway. Well, and, and then, I mean, like I mentioned before, I mean, you get that strange, you know, 1984 sequence after that where, you know, mm. the, the boys are brought in one by one and, you know, they all sign a statement against their beloved poetic oracle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, like I said, I mean, that if you're going to have that scene for my money, and I know Michael would rather have the office packing scene as the ending that's the one to end on. Cause I mean, that's kind of the 1984 way to end it, right? That, uh, mm-hmm. you can have these great dreams, but ultimately there are powers that are bigger than your dreams and frankly have more brute force at their disposal mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of leave it there. And I mean, leave it at that sort of, you know, existentialist place that you can try to resist, but you might not be able to, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, then to end it on, I mean, frankly, that, and and here I will agree with Victoria Michael that pornographic shot at the end of you know the great act of student defiance and you know the final tribute to their departing captain uh, I I don't know I mean I I think whatever the suicide and 1984 sequence might have done just gets tossed out the window for you know easy sentiment I forget which of you said that phrase but I like that as well there mm. in the final seconds. You still cry, though. As a teacher, <laughs> I mean, I can't watch that without getting emotional. Yeah. Really, really. And see, I, 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 I know I, I'm I, being I, manipulated. I, I mean, I'm not, not going <laughs> to claim that. Well, I, and see, once again, Michael, I mean, you're, you're just more human than I am because I just get mad. I'm like, it, you're trying to exploit me, and well, now I'm you're, angry. You're choleric, and I'm melancholic. <laughs> well, can, yeah, we, so can, we, can we reframe it in some sense? Go for I, it. I, I see it as a film that really wishes that life was a comedy, mm-hmm. but cannot overcome the tragedy, and okay. so and so tries to fix it by being a fairy tale. 
Hmm. What do you, you think, know, Michael? That makes sense to me. I mean, it, I, I, I do think the tone of this film is hopelessly muddled. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And and what I didn't remember was how little Rob. I mean, David and I was we're talking about this before we started recording that that how little Robin Williams is in this movie. This is a movie about the boys, and to me, that's much less mm-hmm. interesting. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> you're a teacher now, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, though though it, it it does make it interesting to th- to see it as you know. Our students don't follow us out of the room and back to our homes and listen to our, you know, secret thoughts and see us planning for the next day. My students and, don't even listen to my published thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my, 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 my point being, this, since this is a film about the students, we really only ever get to see the classroom persona. We see his um, room once, right? Uh, Neil goes to visit him in his monk's cell. As he describes mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, which is exactly how I talked about my office for years, in spite of the fact that I never saw this movie. By the way, my office, <laughs> literally a monk's cell. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an actual monk in the corner. He hasn't bathed in years. It's his ghost, anyway. <laughs> what have you done to my cell? And now we've drifted from Dead Poet Society to Harry Potter. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Seriously, you do need to need to need to unpack that for people who don't understand what on earth you're talking about, Michael. My, my school was originally a monastery before before we Protestant <laughs> dogs bought it and turned it into a uh, evangelical college. Ripped down the yeah. stations of the cross. At least the stained glass is still around. But yeah, my my right. office was originally some some poor monk lived in here and slept on a single bed. I'm sure. Mm. And now I sit in here. Talking about suicide. <laughs> ah, the world. There's one way to think about it. <laughs> Food for worms, boys. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to do our out-the-door question a little bit differently than I normally do. Uh, I want to go around the horn, starting with David, and here's what I'd like to hear. If the John Keating signature classroom visual is the teacher leading a room full of students to the top of a desk to see things from a higher perspective. What is the signature David Grubbs classroom visual? And I'll, I'll get my Dante reference in this way. When you feel that you're worthy to pass the baton on to Michael, do so. <laughs> Got to get the Dante in. <laughs> um, oh, my word. Do I even have a signature move? I really, really, really should have asked my students this. Yeah, I meant to ask them yesterday, or day before I yesterday, know. when I had students who actually know me well, but I it, it was, I slipped my mind. Yeah, that's my signature classroom move, forgetting to say things in class. <laughs> um, if I have a signature move, um, I'm in, uh, I, I guess I should be a little bit embarrassed um, to say that, yes, I do sit on the desk occasionally. Um, but that's cause I prefer sitting down to standing up. Um, and there's not a chair. <laughs> um, other signature moves. Uh, I talk to the back row a lot cause they don't think I can hear them. And so they'll kind of whisper things to each other, but I can hear what they just said. And so I'll kind of 
respond to what they just said in a whisper. Um, also, I'm, 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 I'm especially embarrassed now having seen this movie to admit that, yes, I do voices in class sometimes. <laughs> Surprising none of our listeners that you do voices on the podcast. I, um, I, I know, right? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really embarrassed because I'm watching this last night having earlier in the day in Intro to Shakespeare read, you know, Don John and Much Ado About Nothing with a droopy dog voice. <laughs> I'm a plain dealing villain, because um, he's just so droopy, you know. Anyway, so yeah, that's that's, I yeah, I, I don't have any, I don't have much better than that. I just, I, I I move a lot, I write on the board a lot, um, I draw pictures, I do a lot of things that John Keating does, and I didn't know he did them, and now that it, he, now that I know he does them, I feel self-conscious <laughs> michael. All right, all right, michael i feel i feel unworthy now <laughs> I, I don't have a signature visual move because i hold my classes mostly in seminar rooms so i just sit at the table um, oh, okay but my signature verbal tics i think are asking impossibly specific questions and then yelling at the students to read my mind <laughs> <laughs> and also um frequently in an aside, calling myself a moron. <laughs> what a moron, I say. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Delightful. What about you, Nathan? Uh, it's not necessarily a, a visual so much as it is a, a verbal tick like you were talking, Michael. But I, I, I did pose this question to my own freshmen and sophomores uh and they said that, you know, the, the signature Gilmore class moment is when I give them a a fairly understandable direction, you know, get into groups of three or four, talk with each other about the text for today, so on and so forth. And when they don't do it, which inevitably they don't because they sit there and pretend that I didn't say anything, I will repeat it in the language of a uh, stereo instruction manual. <laughs> you know, I'll say... All right, now move your bodies so that they're in roughly geometric <laughs> triangular figures. Then using visible marks on a flat surface, create <laughs> symbols that signify ideas so that later on you may look at those signals and speak their significance to the rest of the class, please. Thank you. <laughs> your signature so. move is better than my signature move. <laughs> I, I will I will often ask a question and if nobody answers I'll say that was an actual question. Yeah. That... <laughs> I, I have had students ask that on numerous occasions. Was that was that rhetorical? And was is that it, a rhetorical and question? Is it going to be on the test? Oh well, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> oh shoot. Well anyway, listeners, I wanted you to get a little glimpse inside. You know, if they if they make the uh, dead existentialist society movie, what Michael Farmer will be doing. <laughs> being sad because <laughs> all the existentialists are dead well at any rate uh i have to go teach one of these classes now so i'm going to start heading out the door i want to thank michael farmer and david grubbs for a good conversation um yeah david you've got it next week i'm sorry uh what are we talking about next week well still robin williams still new england but yeah a lot more Bostonian. Uh, we're doing Goodwill Hunting. All right. 
So, listeners, you can tune in next week for that. In the meantime, remember that you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. We have all sorts of groovy ways to get a hold of us. Of course, if you leave reviews on iTunes, we will love you, love you, love you, because those lead other listeners our way. Until then, this has been a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. So the sin-